0: Oh, what a truly wonderful song, lifting our eyes and lifting our hearts indeed to the one who is the almighty creator of all. And uh, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Wonderful thing that the one who set the stars in their place, the one who spoke and uh, created all things out of nothing, the one whose power is uh, unlimited, whose glory is beyond our understanding, loves the children of men. So we come really humbly to him this evening in prayer, and yet we come with gladness, gladness and joy that the creator and the sovereign and the king of the universe is indeed our heavenly father. And we, with the rest of creation, can sing the father's song. So let's pray together this evening and commit ourselves to the Lord. Father, we thank you for lifting our eyes to you in this first song. And we do recognize that creation sings that hallelujah to you. Those eyes that have been opened by your grace, those minds that have been enlightened by your Holy Spirit, see in the wonders of creation around something of your power and your majesty, your might and your dominion. And our Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to see these things. Indeed, Lord, uh, as the hymn writer said, skies above are brighter blue and earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to the wonders of your power and glory in creation. But Father, beyond that, we worship you this evening and we thank you for opening our eyes to see the glory and the perfection of the one that you sent into the world to be our Savior, the one who is sinless, the one who uh, is the Word from all eternity, the one who became flesh, manifest in the flesh, that he might represent us and be our substitute on the cross as a Savior for our sin. And so, our Lord, we come this evening and our hearts are overflowing with praise we thank you for your great your eternal love and we thank you that that love is ours in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord we thank you that you are the God who supplies faithfully every day all that we need there are many things Lord that we want and desire Lord we Uh, know that you haven't promised to give us merely our desires or our wants. You know better than we do what we need, what is best for us. And we thank you that you are supplying that day by day. Lord, we thank you for caring for us in the midst of this pandemic. We thank you, Lord, that we have known your protection and your hand upon us. And Lord, we are glad in your presence this evening. To know that we are in your tender care we do pray for those who have been infected and are suffering and we think of many homes and many families this evening that tragically have been bereaved because of this virus this illness and lord we ask that in your mercy and in your love you will come to them with your comfort and with your peace We pray for those, Lord, who are recovering. We think of some in our own fellowship here who are recovering from the illness, some of them more slowly than others, and we pray that your blessing will be upon them even this evening, and that, Lord, you will bring them back to health and strength again. Lord, do have mercy upon us in these days. We recognise that the gifts that you have given to men and women of science to be able to search out and find vaccines and cures for our illnesses, that these things are tokens of your mercy to us. But our Father, we ask that our eyes may be lifted above even the achievements of men uh, to the great God who makes all things possible. And we pray this evening, Lord, that what is impossible for men is possible for you, that you will remove this virus, remove this pandemic. Father, we pray, Not that we may settle back into a comfortable life of self pleasing, but Lord, that we may have more opportunity and more freedom to advance the cause of Christ and your kingdom in this world. To that end, Lord, we pray that you will again work in our uh, political leaders. We pray for the leaders of our government and our country. We ask our Father that you will give them wisdom from above. We recognize that. There is little sign of any humility or any turning to you, but, Lord, you're a God of grace. You're a God of mercy. And we pray, Lord, that in your grace, you will indeed turn their hearts and their thoughts and their minds to you. Lord, we come nearer home to our own church fellowship here, and we do commit to you again, Lord, as we have spoken of those who are ill. But we pray for one or two in particular, Lord, who are suffering, we think, tonight, uh, again, of we Jenny. And we pray your blessing upon that little girl and upon her mum and uh, those who tend to her and pray, Lord, you will touch her uh, and heal her. We thank, Lord, of our brother Andy Clark and we pray for Andy that you will bless him and continue, Lord, your healing touch uh, upon him. We pray for Naomi, Lord, this evening, that you will strengthen her and that you will make her able, Lord, for further treatment for her illness. We pray tonight, Lord, for Mark, Uh, And we thank you for him, for his faith and his steadfastness. We pray for him and Linda Jane that you'll richly bless them and their family. And we do remember, Lord, Adele tonight and pray for her and for Trevor, Lord, and the family there. We pray you'll touch Adele and restore her to health again. And, Lord, for others in our fellowship who struggle with long-term illness, we pray that your blessing will be upon each one. Remember our shut-in folk tonight. Bless them, Lord, and be near to them. Willie Robert and Alec. Edie and Matty and uh, Noreen, Lord, be with them. Give them a sense of your presence with them, even in their hearts uh, this evening. And so, Lord, we come to pray for your help now as we turn in a moment or two to your word. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you will speak to us. Lord, that you will direct your word in the way that you would want to hearts that need it. And we pray, Lord, that this time together may not in any sense be a vain time or an empty time, a time when you will come and you will bless your people when you will speak to those who are still far from christ and draw them to the savior and when above all above all else dear father you will glorify your son the lord jesus christ we pray these things for his glory and in his name amen Now, we're turning to God's Word this evening, and we're going to read together from John's Gospel. The story that we are going to read tonight, we're only going to read part of it. It actually uh, be- begins in John chapter 18 and moves over into John chapter 19. Uh, it would be very lengthy to read the whole thing, but I make no apology for reading um most of chapter 19 this evening so that we can get the context and, uh, and discover uh, really the, the heart of this story and this man whose life we're going to look into this evening. So John chapter 19, and we begin to read at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns And put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover, It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And there we will end uh, our reading this evening, although we will, when we come to God's Word, be referring to chapter 18 as well as these words here in chapter 19. Before we come to God's Word uh, to preach, we're going to listen to another uh, lovely song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. tragic and pitiful scenes witnessed than those brought before us in these two chapters of John's Gospel, chapters 18 and 19. We are given there a vivid insight into the sinfulness and the depravity of mankind. As we see those who ought to have known better, scheming and manoeuvring, using fair means and foul in order to commit murder. And the subject of all their earthly, of all their evil schemes, well, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. What a commentary on the corruption of their hearts. As we see these Jews pass Jesus on from one authority to another, From Annas to Caiaphas, the high priest, and eventually to Pilate in order to have him executed. On top of all this, of course, we have the defection of the disciples, who we are told all forsook him and fled. And in particular, we have the threefold denial of Peter, the one who was most outspoken in his profession of loyalty and faith to the Lord Jesus. And what a commentary this is on human nature. It describes for us in, in, in terms that we can clearly understand the kind of grip that sin has upon human lives, upon human minds, upon their motives, upon their desires and their aspirations. And we see again that sin is a tyrant, twisting and forcing, clouding and deceiving men and women into pleasing Satan. If you were listening to the previous song, I talked about that, about uh, our Lord being our, our guard against the, the darts of the deceiver, those deadly darts of the one who would deceive. And of course, in the mob rule, which surrounded the trial of Jesus and his crucifixion, Satan was having a field day. We need to pause again this evening and we need to consider this. The the dreadfulness of sin, the sinfulness of sin, the depths of evil to which men and women can and do stoop in our world today. And of course, most of us would protest, well, of course, we are not acting in that kind of dreadful way. We have, we're we not part of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. We were not part of that deceit and so forth. And we would never do things like that. And we try to justify ourselves. We try to lessen the seriousness of the sin that's in our own lives, not realizing or not accepting that the same grip of sin which drove those uh, Jews and the mob in Jesus' day to to uh, take every evil scheme and every evil way to crucify Him, that that same grip sin is upon our lives today. And that's why when we preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's why when when we present him as the only Savior of the world, we are reminding you that there is no other way, no other way that the grip of sin can be broken in your life except through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the story of Pilate starts in Chapter 18 of John's Gospel, which we weren't able to read. And it moves through that chapter into chapter 19 here. And, and it's as if the, the focus, it's the spotlight, if you like, is on Pilate. There's a lot of other things going on. But the focus in, a, in particular is upon this one man who's caught up in this very sordid and sorry sequence of events. Pontius Pilate is clearly a man in a dilemma. And as we read and have read this evening, it's clear that he wants to do what is right. He wants to do what is just. Um, look at verse 29 here uh, of, of, uh, uh, the, of chapter 18. And he as he goes to the Jews, he, he asks them, What accusation do you bring against this man? Here's a a ruler, and he, if you like, he he wanted to do what was just, what was right. He wanted to do his duty. He wanted to carry out his function as the governor uh, charged with applying the law of the land. And it seems from our reading in this gospel, indeed in the other gospels too, that Pilate uh, was sincere in his attempts to get a proper trial for Jesus, um, accused as he was by the Jews. But in so doing, he found himself coming into conflict with public opinion. He found himself uh, coming in conflict with uh, those who were able to stir up the crowd and stir up the mob. And uh, things took a sad, a lamentable turn at the end uh, as we see Pilate squirming, as it were, in his predicament here. So I want to... There are so many things that we could say about Pilate. There's so much in this story, and if we glean from the other Gospels, there is so much that could be said, so much that we could draw out, so many avenues that we could go down and explore. But I want to keep to the central things, and I want to say three things tonight about this story, about this account. The first is this, that we have here a vital question. It's this question in verse 29. What accusation do you bring against this man? The Jews had brought uh, Jesus before Pilate in order to have him uh, killed, in order to have him executed, and this question of Pilate's is highly significant, um, first of all, for its legal implications, because those were uppermost in the mind of Pilate. Um, he wanted to do his duty as the governor, as the Roman governor uh, of uh, this region. He wanted to do what was just legally. But it all ha- also has uh, spiritual and prophetic implications That's to say, though Pilate was initially primarily interested in the legality of what was going on, actually um, it points us beyond that uh, to the morality uh, and the uh, moral issues were were, were at stake here. He wanted evidence upon which he could convict this man or should convict this man. The crowd were howling for his blood. Pilate wanted a fair hearing for Christ and he took the trouble, therefore, to examine the prisoner and question him. But as I say, this was a question which had far more profound implications than legal implications. The fact is that the charges were trumped up, as we know. They were patently false. They were the testimony of lying witnesses. Because as Pilate was a little later to declare uh, to the religious leaders, he could find no fault in Christ. You see, he's talking here, uh, I suppose, again, legally. He's talking about uh, the charges that were brought against him and the, the fact that as far as the law stood, he was innocent. But, of course, there is much more than that. The Lord Jesus, at one point in his life, as he was confronted by his enemies, his opposers, he asked them, he said, who of you convinces me of sin? Who of you convinces me of sin? And to that, the Jews had no answer. Because, you see, not only was Jesus legally innocent here, but Jesus was morally innocent. They were putting on trial one against whom there was no legal fault, but against one also in whom there was no moral flaw and no moral fault. So for that reason, the the question is significant and important. If we have before us this evening then, a man who has been guilty of no sin. Whatsoever. a man who is morally flawless, then we have one who is unique. And he is indeed. He is the sinless Son of God. There is no other to compare with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one of whom Isaiah wrote and said, he has done no violence, neither is there any deceit in his mouth. He is uh, the lamb without blemish. He is the Messiah who was promised in the Scriptures and had these people and had these religious leaders been truly in touch with God, had they truly been seeking truth in the Scriptures, then they would have recognized him, who he was, and from whence he came. That vital question put to them, ought to have given them a further spur to assess the purity of his life, the uniqueness of this man's life and testimony. You know, what what accusation do you bring against this man? What fault can be found in him? What flaw can be recognized in him legally or morally? But you see, these people were blinded by sin in the grip. Of Satan crying out for the blood of the sinless one. (coughs) And I want to ask you this evening if you have a true understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he really is, can you not see by his sinless life that he is truly the Son of God? Can you not see how important it is, therefore? that you come to worship him, that he as the unique uh, son and saviour should have a unique place in your life and in all that you have and are. A vital question. What accusation do you bring against this man? But secondly, I want you to see a coming evasion Again, chapter 18 and verse 30. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now look at this answer. It was no answer at all. It was an evasion of the question. They neatly sidestepped the question that was put to them by the governor. They were as much as saying to Pilate, Well, do you not trust us? You think we would waste your time uh, in this manner if this man had done nothing wrong? But of course, this begged the whole question, didn't it? Pilate was asking them for evidence which would convict this man. Their problem was that they had nothing of which to accuse him. So they had to avoid answering the query. And so they did. They sidestepped the crunch issue by implying, by implying that Pilate should not imagine or, or did not imagine that they would take the trouble of bringing to him a man for punishment if indeed he was innocent. Really interesting to dig beneath the surface here in one or two places. You see, the real grievance that the Jews and the Jewish leaders had with Jesus was that he was a blasphemer in their eyes. Here was one who claimed to be the Son of God. Here was one who, if you like, was usurping what they thought was a, a place not uh, reserved for him. And that was, his, that was their, uh, their quarrel with him. He was a blasphemer. But you see, that kind of charge, it, it would cut no ice, really, with the Roman governor or with the Roman authorities. They weren't interested in what they regarded as internal religious squabbles and so forth amongst the Jews. So it's interesting that in chapter 19, as we move on into the story, you discover this, that they don't come to, they don't come to Pilate um, with this charge that he's a blasphemer, but they come to him um, with the charge that he claims to be a king. Look at chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so you see, they were, if you like, playing into Pilate's hands. They were they were playing in his court. They, they could see that if this was regarded by him as merely a a religious squabble, a religious uh, difference that he would have nothing to do with it. So they brought this charge of Christ claiming to be a king. How sad to see these people, many of whom were the religious pillars of society, many of whom would have claimed to be learned in the law and the scriptures. And they were bent on the condemnation of this innocent and pure man. One would think that the, the obvious lack of evidence against him would make some of them at least pause, would make some of them stop and think, can these things be right? Can these things be good? Can these things be acceptable? But no. They were blinded by sin, by bigotry and resentment against this one who had clearly shown up in his earthly life and ministry, so many of their hypocrisies, both in their worship and in their living. And so, as blinded leaders, they were putty in the hands of Satan. He gave them every encouragement. The devil gave them every encouragement and every help to close their minds further to the truth and to evade the implications of Christ's life and teaching. I discover, as I talk to men and women at times and have done over the years, that they often are inclined to evade the real issues. You know, when it comes to uh, talking about death and eternity, about sin and guilt, about the need for forgiveness and reconciliation um, with God, they tend to evade. They tend tend to want to sidestep. The answers to these questions are too uncomfortable, and their inclination at times then is to put them out of their minds. Recently I attended a funeral and uh, it came to me again as it often does really when I attend funerals. You know, how can men and women listen, stand by, if you like, a, a coffin or stand by a graveside, recognize that someone has gone out into eternity, that what has been done or undone cannot be changed and How is it that they can avoid then the profound questions of their own mortality, of their own eternal welfare, of the destination to which they are heading as they recognize the fate of all men and women eventually, should the Lord tarry? Perhaps you do at times inwardly ask yourself big questions. Perhaps you do within your own heart confront some of these big issues about life, about death, about eternity and where you will spend it. But then perhaps because the answers are too upsetting or too uncomfortable, And certainly with every um, encouragement of the evil one, subtly he will get you to put these things to one side. Put these things out of your thoughts and go on living your life, ignoring what you know are the most vital questions you will face for time and for eternity. So the Jews here were guilty of a a cunning evasion. They evaded the issues. They evaded the issues. The vital question, well, what accusation do you bring against this man? And the cunning evasion was, well, if he weren't a a guilty wrongdoer, would we have brought him to you? It didn't answer the question at all. They evaded the issue. The third thing I want to say this evening Concerns pilot specifically because we, here we have a tragic concession. Um, that's why I entitled this uh, talk this evening a tragic um, compromise. Because we <clears throat> read here in uh, in chapter eighteen and. Uh, Verse 38, where Pilate comes to them again, saying that he can find no fault. And we read this that after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, "I find no guilt in him but I find no guilt in him, but but you have accustomed. That I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate took the time to question and examine Jesus. And as we've said, he wanted to do what was just, what was right. And his conclusion was clear. The man was innocent, innocent of the charges which he knew were trumped up against him by the Jews He had done nothing worthy of death. And Pilate could find nothing worthy of death in him. Whatever the truth or otherwise of the claims of this man Jesus, Pilate concluded that he certainly was not guilty of any crime. And that should have been it. That should have been the conclusion. That should have been his verdict. He should have given his verdict and then stuck to it. What we have here, however, is very sad. I find no guilt in him. But, but what? Well, the but introduces this sorry, this tragic concession and this tragic compromise. Pilate Compromises with the crowd. He seeks peace at all costs. As comfortable a life as possible. No upsetting of others. No offending their ideas. And of course, no putting at risk his own place in the Roman hierarchy and so forth. And so he compromises with the crowd. He offers them something to placate them. A choice which he thinks is a foregone conclusion. He thinks, well, of course, they'll, they'll, they'll let Jesus go and they'll have Barabbas condemned, but of course they don't. This concession, <coughs> this compromise, is so vital, so tragic. I see it mirrored in men and women today. They know right from wrong. They know what is true and what is false. They know often the truth of the gospel and they accept it. They know what they need to do and ought to do about Christ and finding Christ and finding life in Christ. But but they don't do it. They don't want to offend others. They don't want to be the one who stands out from the crowd. They don't want to lose face. They don't want to leave behind the lifestyle, the self-pleasing lifestyle that they've had. They don't want the opposition and the criticism, perhaps the mockery. Sometimes it comes from following the Lord Jesus. And in the end, they neglect Christ and they refuse him and his eternal life. You know, Pilate is a tragic case. To get the whole story, you need to read the four Gospels and collect the information that is given in those four Gospels about him. But let me summarise what the Bible teaches about him. How sad and sorry and tragic his decision to hand Jesus over was. First of all, as we have seen very clearly, he knew Jesus was innocent. We are told here in the Scriptures that he realised that they had delivered him, the Jews had delivered him up out of envy. They knew the charges were trumped up. And on a number of occasions, we find in these two chapters in John here, he tried to release Jesus. He attempted to have his release secured. To no avail, of course. But I want to suggest to you also that he knew who Jesus was. In chapter 18 um, and verse 39, he says, So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, you may think that uh, perhaps that was just him accommodating his language, really, uh, to the Jews. But if you look at chapter 19, if you look at chapter 19, the Jews in verse 7, answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid because he realized there was something substantial in this claim that Jesus made. How do we know that? Well, if you turn to Matthew chapter 27 uh, and verse 19, you discover this, that while he's sitting on his judgment throne, as it were, he receives a message from his wife. And the message is this. Don't have anything to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered so much this night in a dream because of him. God was speaking. God was revealing. But even that warning from his wife, that warning from God through his wife, that realization which we see uh, uh, pinpointed here, where it talks about him being even more afraid when he hears of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Well, he knew who Jesus was, and he was warned by God but he tried to compromise and he was condemned. You know, I think it's such a sad thing that he wants Jesus released because he knows he's innocent. And then we read in verse chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Why? Why flog him if he's an innocent man, if he believed he was innocent? Why expose him to the mockery and the... Uh, 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 and the blasphemous actions of the soldiers here, and so forth. Well, he was compromising. He was conceding to those who opposed him and it brought condemnation. Matthew tells us that he wanted to pacify the crowd. And uh, in fact, what he did was he took water and he washed his hands before them. And he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Let me tell you, washing your hands will not make you innocent of Christ's blood. Washing your hands will not wash away your sin or your guilt or the righteous condemnation that is upon you as a sinner outside of Jesus Christ. And John tells us here that ultimately he kept in with Caesar. If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. And at the end of the day, Pilate chose his position and his relationship with an earthly emperor rather than his eternal destiny secured in Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. What a tragic compromise. I want to challenge you this evening. Ask you where you are spiritually. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, many of you will know and will believe the truth of these things that we've been talking about this evening. Many of you who know the gospel and know that this gospel rings true and yet you're still a stranger to God's grace. And your life is a life of compromise. A life in which you're making tragic concession to the world and the things of this world and the things of time. And the ultimate result of that will be eternal tragedy, eternal condemnation, eternal separation from God. We'll learn tonight from Pontius Pilate. I sometimes wonder, did he ever, later on, did he ever come to a true acknowledgement of Jesus Christ, a saviour? We don't know. We have no idea. I sometimes think it would be wonderful if really he did reflect upon these things and if he did repent and did trust Jesus. But we have no way of knowing. Well, may God speak to your heart tonight and save you from that tragic compromise which will consign you to a lost eternity. We're going to pray together and ask God's blessing upon his word this evening. And then we're going to listen to our closing hymn and that will close our service. Yet not I but through Christ in me. And that's the song of the believer tonight. As we seek to live out our lives and seek to witness for him in a sinful world, we're not claiming to be better than anybody else. We're not claiming to be superior. We're not claiming to be different in and of ourselves. It's not we who make the difference. It's Christ living in us who makes the difference. So let us pray, and then we'll hear this final hymn. Our Father, we ask you tonight that you will speak through your word. Thank you for those listening in who do know you and have trusted you as Saviour. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your promise to forgive and to cleanse is one that is absolutely unbreakable. We bless you for that lovely word of the Apostle Paul quoted from the scriptures, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we thank you for those listening tonight who have called in the name of the Lord and have this salvation. Keep us true to you, Lord. Help us to live our lives uncompromisingly for you. May we avoid, Lord, sinful compromise in our lives. But, Lord, we pray for those tonight who are unsaved listening, who are living a tragic compromise with their lives, perhaps knowing the truth of the gospel and the truth about Christ, but living their lives still in opposition to and separation from him. we hear our prayers this evening, Lord. Speak by your Holy Spirit. Save those who are unsaved. And bless your people. Bless us, Lord, as we go out into another week keep us in the hollow of your hand and keep us walking in your way that we may by our lives glorify our wonderful Savior. In his name
1: we pray. Amen. Yet not I,